Yeah, that countdown makes me feel like we're on a movie, Luke. <laughs> yeah, it does. Three. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome. Welcome <laughs> back to the With Joe Weeby podcast. Now, it should be, Luke, you can see this, right? Put it all up. All right, so yeah, a very exciting little mini-series that we're actually going to do. I'm going to start doing more mini-series here with Luke's help. And this one is on the great Nassim Nicholas Taleb, in particular his book Anti-Fragile, and applying it to education, learning, and careers. And Luke's going to help me unpack it. So there's a few things I'll um, preface, and then we'll just launch in. Firstly... The book, anti, like he has a lot of books, Taleb. Anti-Fragile is probably my favorite. It's very well-known, international bestseller, very culturally significant. It is a tough read though. Luke, I'll throw to you here. You've just started reading it. What's your what's your take so far? Well, I guess when I started reading it, I was reading it on Kindle. I had to, I had to click on probably 50% of the words at first <laughs> to make sure I was still following. But no, it's, it's really good. If you, for me, I have to read it a little bit slower, but I like the fact that it's very conceptual, so it's very open-ended and makes it draws you in and makes you think about the ideas a little bit deeply than something you yeah. can just skim through. So yeah, I'm enjoying unpacking it yeah. myself at the moment. Keen yeah, to get into very, it with you. It's a very good, I guess, setup for us. I've gone through the book very much in depth. Luke is like a bit more fresh to it. I actually like that for the dynamic of trying to make this relatable and actionable because Taleb stuff is not necessarily very ground level. Right, Luke. It's it is a bit more meaty, but but because of that, mm. it's very powerful, and that's that's what I want to try and be able to unpack for people who might not want to read the five hundred page monster. That's very academic in its writing. Uh, credit to Taleb, but I think his writing style is not necessarily for the average person. I think he writes for other academics. So. <laughs> As he's entitled to, I won't go down that path. Anyway, the ideas are gulped. I want to emphasize we will hardly be able to scratch, you know, half the value in the book. We'll do our best to extract the most relevant parts for, I guess, the typical kind of listener of this podcast. I will, for those who want to go deeper in the rabbit hole, I will leave a long form blog post with pretty much everything we're going through in the show notes for each relevant episode for this mini series. It'll be a couple episodes and that way you can just go and hit that and, and go over uh, more of it. Also, I think a warning, Luke, is in order because I wouldn't get intimidated or overwhelmed if this hurts your head a bit. I sit with it. You might not necessarily get it in the first go, but that is the, how do I say, that is, that is the learning happening. That is your brain being stretched and challenged, which is, which is good. And you can always come back to it too, especially in podcast format is very easy. Yep. Luke, you ready to just jump in then? All right. Yeah, mate, well, first it. I thought we'd go over uh, a little bit of preamble on why it's actually important. Okay. I thought that would be very interesting. I don't know how much you really, people need to really know about Taleb. I mean, he's a very sassy guy. He's very funny on, on Twitter. He's not afraid to call people out. He's like me. He's got a Lebanese background. So it's that fiery type of uh, <laughs> wog persona. And he has a background as an entrepreneur and an op but especially as an options trader. He's a very big, I think he's very big mathematically. So he's done a lot of analysis, statistical analysis and stuff like that. And the reason why I want to talk about him, see, interesting thing, Luke, he's not traditionally tagged as an education thinker. Right, he's not a yep. uh, yeah. He's not someone who you'd you'd learn about at university if you're doing a teaching degree or anything like that. And it's very interesting because I think there's actually a quote from Taleb in the book Anti Fragile that summarizes why he is so important to education. And that is, 
What one needs to know for a profession is necessarily what lies outside the corpus, as far away from the center as possible. All right. I don't know if that will make much sense to people, but I want to try and unpack that a little bit first, because this is actually why he's relevant is because of the non-obvious links to education. So we talked about with Luke, we talked about without the box thinking, I think it was episode 136. And we have this tendency in our culture that systems we create normally move away from the key problem they're meant to solve or the service they're meant to provide over time, right? So something set up like school, there's a subculture that develops in there, principals, teachers, students, parents, we have all these dynamics and roles to play. And as it becomes more complex, right, you've got all big school systems managed across countries internationally, People start zooming in on the system and then they lose sight of the big picture and they float away from the original purpose of what was done because of the complexity of our human systems. So the high school and the university thing, I think, is a great example for the times we live in. Right? We, we live in a time where it's easy to actually set up a business, not make a million dollars, but set up a business than it is to get into a prestigious university, which is actually strange. Because right, the, the normal hierarchy is you work somewhere and then you can start businesses. Now we're getting tools to actually start and create things is easier than actually kind of getting conventional jobs. So the social life and resources at college and campus university, I acknowledge all that. There's more, there's more than there's more on offer there. But the application of learning in these places is becoming diluted. This is a very consistent feedback across especially every young person I've talked to. The quality of learning in those institutions is becoming less relevant to the everyday world. I acknowledge that there are other benefits there, right? Like there can be a big party. <laughs> College and university can be a big party time. Anyway, the leaders of these institutions try their best, I'm sure, to iterate and keep up with the times, but very often they have constraints, like the bureaucracy, right? They've got boards, they've got different stakeholders, they've got demands of funding, but also usually the desire to keep a position of status, of authority or power that they have too. So over time, these become very powerful incentives not to make aggressive innovation and changes. So for example, like I, I kind of use this example. In 2018, you know how I was doing the nonprofit stuff with Nick and Scott, right? So I fired yep. myself, right? We actually shut down the nonprofit. I was, I was a co-director, co but it was easy, right? It was easy. It sounds dramatic, but it was easy. It was a yeah. small little thing. We didn't really have all these people depending on the nonprofit as a source of income, right? I wasn't paid for the work. Yeah, we didn't have that formal team. I'd only been doing it for like two years. I had a separate business in real estate, so it wasn't like everything was riding on it. So it was an easy, right, to, to do what we considered to be the necessary thing, which is that the entity was actually redundant, right? My question is, how does the leader of like a big, say, charity, like a World Vision or something, or the leader of a schooling institution or a politician, or when do those people actually... If the best thing to do was to fire themselves or to shut down the thing they were in charge of, when would they actually do it, right? Every possible self-preservation impulse forbids it. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, yeah, what are also, they've got to be thinking, what are the implications exactly. across the board? Exactly, when exactly. It's at, at that, that scale. scale. So this is my point around, before we really get into 
uh, Nassim, Nicholas Taleb, why the focus actually normally has to be outside of these systems. Because if you're going to ask the people in the middle of it to change, they're actually at the center of often part of the problem. And this is why it's that law of impermanence, right? Innovation's always coming from a new player. Anyway, so this, that's kind of even the without-the-box thinking concept I talk about, right? And so they don't normally drive the big innovation. It's people who actually go back to first principles, look at the, what was the point behind this thing, and they kind of drive it. Anyway, so that's, that's a bit of a, like a precursor. So why are Taleb's ideas specifically important? So instead of talking about what classrooms should look like all the time and what sort of assignments we should give young people or, or you know, people early career even, his themes actually, one of his biggest themes, Luke, is uncertainty, right? I think you would have gathered that so far. Risk, uncertainty, and nonlinearity, yep. especially because he's got that investor background, invest, investing entrepreneurial background. So most of his work unpacks those powerful forces of randomness and how human perception makes mistakes in trying to both reify and control randomness as well as take credit for the random outputs of nature. So reify is basically a word for when people try and take something that's intangible and hard to like understand and complex and they try and make it into a very simple, small, smaller version that they could understand. For a big example is probably God, right? Instead of what the concept of a God really is, people kind of turn into a man sitting on a, on a mountain or clouds in the sky. They, they turn into a simpler version they can understand, even though it doesn't reflect the reality of the concept. So in one line, if I was to sum up, Taleb, sum up uh, Taleb's themes, things are random. Because we don't appreciate the full extent of this randomness, all the things we do normally make matters worse, <laughs> which is basically what he always talks about. We actually end up punishing ourselves, uh, and there's good examples we'll go through like medicine, the state of economics and politics, to, to name a few, but we actually need to just acknowledge this randomness to begin being productive. So you go back to like where education is now, where we think about careers and everything post high school now, it's, it's on the wrong kind of, it's looking in the wrong place for the solutions and therefore, because it's constantly looking in the wrong direction, it can't be productive. So when I was reflecting about this before, and Luke, you can say whether you agree or disagree with this, but I feel like mainstream education, if not Western society or maybe capitalism broadly, seems to work like a promise. It's probably more of a lottery system, but it seems to work like a promise. The story is, if you study hard and apply yourself, you will get your just rewards. You'll be successful, you'll own assets, you'll be fulfilled. But I think that idea as a promise instead of a probability is absurd because the reality is that chance and randomness, and I don't want to use the word luck here, but chance and randomness have a much bigger part to play in your life outcomes than individual brilliance or control. Right? But this is where I think it gets really pernicious. Like I think quite cunningly, the mind is constantly overestimating the role we've played in our success. Right? Like, for example, I studied at university and I'm successful. Like, insert definition of successful. Therefore, university is good. Is, is just as erroneous to say as, I didn't study at university and I'm successful. Therefore, university is bullshit. Right? That both, both are, that's a massive jump. Right? Both are massive jumps. But obviously, the dominant story 
especially for say probably our parents' generation, is the former, right? And we jump to conclusions like, because I did this, that's what made me successful. But consider this, right? This is the kind of contrarian point. Did Steve Jobs decide to be born in the shadow of Silicon Valley? Right? Did he manage to plot his time of birth to coincide with Steve Wozniak, who was the co-founder of Apple, right? actually the technical part of making the computers? And also Jobs was cunning enough to get a tour of Xerox Park to essentially steal from under their nose the concept for the modern computer. Right? But as I always point out with like the Thousand Doors concept, he couldn't have known specifically what he was going to find at Xerox Park. He was just cunning enough to negotiate. They were investors in Apple, and he, so he negotiated to go see what they were working on. And they got the idea for the, the display of a computer. He didn't know specifically what he'd find. Right? So he couldn't control that. It's like the Columbus thing, if you remember the Columbus point. So none of these three factors, which I would argue are three of definitely the bigger, if not the biggest factors in his, certainly his initial success and emergence, has anything to do with the abilities we naturally associate with success, like IQ or individual ability, right? They have nothing to do with the things we learn at school. Why I shine a light on Taleb, I think, here is he kind of gives us an awareness about this bigger picture reality of things. So when people think about what they want to learn, they normally think about, I was thinking about this, almost calling them like micro skills, right? Like, um, how do I design a website? How do I write better? How do I code? How do I write a cold email? How do I start a podcast, right? Like they're very micro skills. And they're all very important, but I think you can almost AD20 it. Like those things are important, right? But I think there's also bigger macro skill concepts that are just harder to talk about communicate and give to people and they're things like the bucket the thousand doors probably self-awareness positioning like having optionality people might not even understand what those things are right when i talk about them understanding nature right natural systems so they're like very vague intangible and high level so it's hard to create an education system for them but i think as a result what we do is we focus on the path of least resistance Right? We teach people the basics, not because it's better, but because it's easier. This is, I know I'm throwing a lot there, but does that make sense so far, Luke? Like, does any of that, is that? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does, Joe. I mean, it comes back to, I was just thinking of an example. It's like when I, if I can, if I can give you an early example, when I started a, a new job, you're eager to learn and you want to ask, you want to ask questions like how how can I be successful in this role? How how can I how can I achieve these outcomes? And the response is normally the response is normally you just just you wait. You need to get experience because it can't be. It's very difficult to explain. There's no there's no sort of ABC that you can do. Which I think I think that's some of the ideas you're delving into. Exactly, in but I, and I think um, the, the biggest things that do impact that being successful here or even being successful like beyond one workplace environment are like much higher order concepts basically. But they're also things that you don't necessarily get to control. Two, like being born in a particular time is a huge impact on your ability to succeed. Like if you're born in the 12th century, Luke, um, completely different story, right? Like, yes, we, we, get, we, we only get to like control so much, so focus on what you can control. But we also obsess over what we can control too. 
and we overestimate like we overestimate the control we actually have is a big part of Taleb's philosophy. Yeah. 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 Just a quick point on that. Warren Buffett mentions a lot that if he was born in a different time, he would practically be useless <laughs> because it would rely a lot more on his say physical ability or something something of that nature which he yeah, would be that's such a good example. <laughs> he said he'd be at the bottom of the food He'd be at the bottom of the food chain, but he happened to be born in born in capitalist yes. society in the United States, where his role assigning capital to different companies pays off Absolutely. in a massive way. But you Absolutely. can't underestimate the chance that's involved yeah. in that as well. Now, what I want to come back to is there's some sort of in between, where between like all the massive things you have no control over. And, and, and the little things you can learn that are very like, you see a quick feedback loop. Like I learned how to make a website. I can earn money doing that next month. There are, there are a higher order set of abilities, I think, that come with just a bigger awareness about the stuff Taleb writes about with uncertainty, which is basically how do you actually play the game of uncertainty? And we'll go through that in this like series, but in the example I gave about jobs, to me, it's things like you need to like be in a place where you can meet your Steve Wozniak. You need to be doing, it was quite sneaky from him, like the Xerox Park thing. Like those are the small things that can actually have a huge payoff. And none of them are intellectual abilities. None of them are intellectual abilities. What's the real way you kind of, the best way to kind of succeed, say, use like the capitalist kind of idea of success, right? Even though I don't really like giving that more kind of weight. But the best way to actually kind of have good prospects, I think, is to just be friends with a lot of rich people, right? Or friends with a lot of innovative people. But if you're friends with rich people, like they'll attract more innovative people than average, right? Right. But the funny thing is like how do you create an education system like that. But in some respects, it's kind of what we have actually, if you actually think about it. Because you think about the way prestigious universities work, like Harvard or the Oxfords or the Cambridges of the world, they're kind of the real values in, as the alumni and the network, right? Not necessarily the information they're getting at Harvard is 10 times better than what they're getting at the university, like the local university or college. Right, so but being part of a network like that and the connections you get probably helps you advance way more. But we can't really like package that up. It's like the example. The example I want like to make this kind of very real. I think the example of like so Liam Hounsell is the person who works started working with me on the constant student, right? But didn't do like some international search or spend hours poring over LinkedIn, searching high and low, screening applications to figure out who's the best candidate, right? I, I chose Liam because one, he was available. Two, we'd already built rapport through a friendship. Three, it was clear he had a lot of potential. Four, he easily exceeded like the basic requirements, right? And so I didn't need someone world class, didn't even need it. And five, the prospect of working with him gave me like a whole body yes feeling, right? Now, Liam, was like Liam, just like me, was not really qualified in any obvious way for the role, right? Apart from like attitude, right? He's, he's dyslexic, like writing is not as easy for him as it is for most other people, 
right? There's no previous experience in the role. But yet, you know, he's the person I work with because we've been networked together. In the same reason, like, I didn't conduct some massive search to get someone to help me with a podcast. I was like, well, Luke's here. Luke's very capable. Luke would be good at doing that. You just go straight to Luke. There was no interview process, you know. There was not some huge screening process. You know, obviously the relationship we have has been built over years. And I don't know if this is like some sort of gold-plated opportunity for you necessarily, but it's an interesting conversation around how do you actually end up places, right? And the thing is, randomness and all this stuff is such a big part of it. You just don't know. If you would tell me six months ago or a little bit, little bit before that that I'd be helping you with the podcast, like we only came through that by discussing, having our own conversations. As you said, there was no point where, yeah, you were looking looking and interviewing and stuff like that. It just doesn't, it very rarely works like that. And how, how often do people that go through that linear process make the wrong decision? Exactly. Trying to put everyone in a box. Yes, this is the criteria we need to fill this role. And then it doesn't work out exactly. always exactly. as expected. Exactly. Yeah. And so this is the interesting thing about the real narratives. So I think now we'll probably start going into anti-fragile concepts specifically. And that's what we'll do. So this will be the end of one episode, certainly. And then when people come back tomorrow, we'll start going through the ideas in anti-fragile, the book, which follows on from those things I just introduced and how it applies to like education, learning, and especially like navigating career. And we'll, we'll break down the, the most relevant themes we find, especially Taleb's categories, metaphors, and analogies, which, which are normally very, very good. We'll unpack why it's relevant, and we'll unpack if, where possible, it can be applied, especially using ourselves as examples. So that's what we will go over tomorrow. All right.